Welcome to the program. My guest today is Max Everett, the Energy Department's Chief Information Officer. Max, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Now, this is a special edition of Ask the CIO. This is the second time we've done this. My colleague, Tom Temin, the anchor of the Federal Drive, joins me for a dual, if you will, uh, conversation. Tom, it's always great to have you on the show. Well, it's always great to be with you, Jason, especially on a topic I really care about, and that's federal IT. There's plenty to talk about, Max. You guys are one of the few agencies actually to win money from the Technology Modernization Fund. That's where I want to start there, because I think that's been a very popular and hot topic across the federal uh, market. So maybe just... Talk about that project to move email to the cloud and, and where you're at with it. We're a, a large, uh, I'll say a bit unique department. We're very federated. We've got a number of sites, our national labs and other pieces. And so historically over the years, frankly, email just sort of grew up organically um, over time at the department. But one of the results of that is we've got a large number of different email systems running around across the department. And while we've moved headquarters and some other areas had already moved onto cloud email, we have a number of different sites for a lot of different reasons. Some of them just geography, staffing, budget, and things that had not made the move to cloud email. And so that was one of the things uh, when I walked in and when some of our leadership walked in, wanting something that really, we think, helps with collaboration, especially for a department that has so many different missions and has such a geographic spread. We thought that that was really important. And so, uh, and of course, frankly, some of the efficiencies that you get out of cloud email as well were a big part of that. And so that was one of the things I wanted to move forward. And as soon as we saw um, the opportunity for the TMF fund, we thought that that was a perfect place to, to put that into practice. And Max, one of the implications of the TMF fund is that you know what your costs are so that you can calculate calculate what your savings are to eventually, in theory, pay this back. Do you feel like you have a good handle on what those differentials will be? Well, we do. And, I, and that's a great point. You know, I think TMS was to drive people to move towards that model. Um, I think that's what we're trying to do across really all of federal government is understand what is our cost for a service? What's my cost for an email, for a desktop, for, for all these different services we do? I mean, that's really how we should be managing our IT. And so that was, for me, one of the values of going after the TMF fund, you know, this money was to really push people towards that cultural change of this is how we should be managing IT across the department. And so that was a big part of it. And of course, frankly, I think cloud email is a really great one there because as somebody who in his, his recent, his previous life has actually administered exchange. I knew all the different costs you have for having servers and backups and third-party tools and licensing and on and on. And so when you move to cloud email, it really collapses a lot of those costs into some very you know basic, understandable numbers of this is how much an email box costs. And so I think it's, it's sort of a, a starter version of how you can get some of those costs shrunk down very quickly. Um, so that's one of the reasons you know I was excited about moving us there and we've certainly seen, you know, from other agencies who've done that, it's really helped them get a handle around at least that one area of cost. Max, I want to go down the path of the business case in a second. Before I do that, what's the latest with that project and that, and that, that effort? How many emails or, or when do you expect to start making that consolidation happen? Well, the good news for us is some of the consolidation was underway. So we sort of broke up into a couple of different elements. We had, uh, again, part of the department has already moved to cloud email. We had some of our sites and labs who are already in the process, who we have been working with in big and little ways anyway. And then we had another, what I'll call maybe a, about a little over uh, a third to a half the department 
that was really the focus of this money. They were ones who needed some additional support, additional capability to really sort of get over that hump. And so we've just started down the road. So a number of our sites have actually already been doing migrations. So I think we added another probably five or 6,000 email accounts to the cloud over the last six months. And those were ones that were already underway. In the meantime, we just got our first funding transfer. And right now, we're actually working on a couple of the different contract vehicles that are going to help us apply that money where we need it. And I think you answered this, but this also encompasses the labs and the regular headquarters type of components? It does, absolutely. So again, you know, we've got environmental sites, uh, we've got our labs, we have other program-related sites, and then, of course, we've got different federal programs and things you know, spread out throughout the country. One of the things about cloud email, it seems so simple, right? It seems like, why wasn't this done three, five, seven years ago when cloud really was big. I mean, there was this big move. You saw USDA, GSA as two examples. Was there something specific that held you guys back in energy? I know you weren't there. Or was it just, I know you mentioned budget and geography and and kind of know-how. There's different reasons. But was there a culture change that you had to also affect? Well, I think culture is a big part of it to be to be honest, I think we did have some some technical pieces. And what I mean by that, I, well, I know we may talk later a little about the tick. For some of our more remote sites, I think there were some technical challenges with that. I, you know, there were in certain places. And I, when I say budget challenge, it's, it's what I would call technical debt. You had places that had made the investment in these things, and there's a cost to making that cutover. And it's a sort of the down payment, if you will. And sometimes that's, you know, for a smaller site, that may be a significant amount of money. And so that that itself becomes a bit of a challenge. Uh, but I would say there was also, like many places in, in IT, both public and private sector, there was absolutely a cultural issue. There were people that were very used to doing things a certain way. There were people who may be a little hesitant to go into cloud. So those cultural things were definitely a part of it. But I think our leadership has given some clear expectation and direction that they want people to be forward-leaning and they want them to be moving to these modern platforms. And maybe just to put a bow on this, when you say migrating to the cloud, you mean a single platform unified for the entire department, not just replicating all these other subsystems only in the cloud. Well, it is. But initially, you know, and initially what we're doing is we will be moving folks. Some of the folks will be going into their own tenants, meaning they'll be moving from an on-prem email server into the cloud. And then what we're working on is how we do the federation, how we collapse some of those tenants down over time. The one thing about the technology modernization fund that everybody loves to ask about, so I'm going to just join the bandwagon, is the payback model. And and that's one of the hardest things. Talk a little bit about your approach to the payback model as much as you can. And there's expectations we've heard from Alan Thomas from GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, who's on the TMF board, that it's not going to be five years, okay, pay us back our money. They want to see that payback happen more quickly as part of winning this process, we worked with them over what, you know, one, number one, what's the funding schedule? So, you know, while we got a substantial amount of money, they didn't just sort of drop a bag of cash and walk away. It was, you know, what I found was as a collaborative process, and it still is, with GSA and OMB. And so they're giving the money in pieces. And, you know, it's essentially what any of us would just call good, good program management. So they're giving the first amount of money. There is a set of milestones and gateways that we need to get to before we get the next money. And then along the way, we've built out a plan on, you know, what we believe the cost recovery would be as we get the efficiencies of moving to cloud email. And so all of those things are lined up together to do the repayment. Uh, But the reality is that this, again, is what it was built for. There are a lot of things that we want to modernize across government, 
But a lot of our focus and the, the purpose of TMF was to look for the ones where we can save money. And so the idea was you put this investment up front, right? You, you get out from underneath technical debt on the front end, and you make sure you know your cost models so that you know you're going to be getting the repayment on the back end because of the efficiencies. We were very fortunate because we had already moved the headquarters a few years ago, had already been moved to cloud email. So we had a very good understanding of exactly what those cost models would look like. So that, frankly, made it much easier for us to do what we think are very reasonable and conservative estimates on what the cost savings will be over time. Are you able to talk a little bit about what those cost savings will be yet, even by percentage? Like right now, do you pay $50 per employee per email and you can get it down to 25 or even just a percentage? A lot of those vary across the department. And uh, to be honest, I don't remember the number off the top of my head. And in fact, I know, I think on performance.gov, they may have some basic numbers up. And what you'll see there, even when you look, frankly, is one of the conversations we're having across the department is is making sure that every when everyone talks about what their cost for an email is, that you're talking about things apples to apples. You know, so for example, there's a license cost, but even if you're in the cloud, you're going to have some administrative costs. You may have some third-party security tools. All of those need to be part of your cost models. And I can't remember ours, to be honest, off the top of the head for headquarters. But what we've seen across the department is there is a great variance. And again, when you look across the entire federal government, there's an enormous variance in those cost models. Some of them because people have just had different tools and costs. Some of them because we don't always have the best handle that we should on what those costs are. And I think that's, again, what TMF is trying to drive us towards is getting a better handle on the holistic cost you know, again, for providing a mailbox or providing a desktop. And do you have some sort of a maximum storage per account that you're imposing on people? Because that's a major cost item, too, as well as an individual's email sheer volume. Well, they are. You know, those are based on what we're doing in, you know, in the particular COD email. We're on Office 365. And as, as somebody who came up in technology, it's funny you said that. I was laughing the other day. I was looking at the, you know, the size of the mailbox you can have in, in Office 365 now. I think if I saw right, it was uh, 50 gigabytes. And I was sort of chuckling, thinking back even, you know, even eight or 10 years ago, thinking about the normal size of a mailbox you could have at many places. You know, you were talking about you know, some places were, you know, as small as one or five gigabytes, you know, and so I remember people going through the process of having to go back and delete old mail or old attachments to try and make room in their mailbox. Um, and we're, we're thankfully a good ways beyond that now. Yeah, I think we still do that too. Sometimes <laughs> we're told, hey, you've uh, reached the limit, get, get rid of some of your attachments. Very good. Max, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to jump into that new, if you will, model that you're using from this TMF effort toward a more generally IT modernization. My guest is Max Everett, the Energy Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller. I'm Tom Temin. And you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and I'm joined by Tom Temin, Federal News Radio. Our guest today is Max Everett, the Energy Department's Chief Information Officer. Now, Max, before break, we were talking about the TMF, the Technology Modernization Fund, and how you guys are really moving cloud to the email and why. And one of the things that this really is doing, not just for you, but I think for the broader federal government, is having them, CIOs like yourself, step back and program managers step back and take a better look at what does it mean to develop a business case? How, how do I look at IT modernization? Because and I think this was said recently on, on my show from a gentleman who used to work at the Commerce Department on shared services. It takes money to save money. And you're not going to 
find the money to save money unless you understand what your costs are. So that's a long way of saying how does this effort under TMF and moving email to the cloud is kind of change, if you will, your focus or, or the government's focus on IT modernization. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I'll mention one of the other pieces, you know, a lot of focus has been on TMF on, on the fund um, of that piece. But I think there's another piece of the MGT Act that, that I think illuminates that very well. The other part of the MGT Act was the push towards establishing these working capital funds at departments. The, the reason that they pushed that was the idea of, of getting into life cycle management, right? And all of these tie together, which is, you know, I, I've said, and unfortunately, you know, that the this happens all too often in government. We put in a system, we put in you know a server or a service or a system, and then we let it run for a few years, and then all of a sudden we realize that it's it's a, it's now become a legacy system. It's out of date. It's not doing. It's not delivering value for the customer. And what happens, of course, is at that point somebody suddenly realizes, oh, we better start working on a replacement. And only then do we put it in the budget cycle, and then it may take a year or two to actually get the money. And the whole time we're spending, you know, we're paying money into a system that's not delivering value to the customer. And part of this idea of moving to life cycle planning is really flattening out and understanding all these costs over time, right? So the email, I think, is an easy example, but there are other ones that are definitely more challenging. But as we look at all of the technology services we provide, this idea of understanding the cost for the service and the value we're providing back, that's the overarching question. And I think, again, both the MGT Act, the IT modernization report from the White House, even the president's management agenda, I think all of those are focused on the very same thing. And how does the possibility of shared services come into this equation? Because sometimes maybe instead of going to a new system to replace the legacy, you can simply find a service existing elsewhere and avoid the whole problem. Yeah, that's a big part of this. And I th- and you're seeing, I think, out of the White House, a tremendous push towards shared services. And the goal of that is exactly what you said. If, you know, I, I think the approach for all of us as CIOs should be, listen, if one of the, if a department is able to provide a service that we all need and they're doing it better, they're doing it faster, they're doing it cheaper, we ought to be able to go to them and have them provide that service. And I think that's definitely behind the push that we're doing when you talk about shared services. And part of that is we need them to be organic. We need them to be customer service focused. And so that's one of the big things we've got to do. And again, this just goes back again to understanding our costs, right? If, if you can show those costs, if you can show the cost for the service, people are going to come. And that, frankly, in a federated department like mine, that's the approach I have to do even with my own internal customers. If I can't show them that, it's going to be hard to get them come along with me. Over the years, I mean, I think that has been the challenge at the energy department is, well, why should we listen to headquarters? We can do it on our own. We have our own budget. We're not seeing the value. Did you have to explain the email value to them, both in the sense of the savings, but also the better capabilities? Was that the key to the culture change? In all honesty, I think people really understood that. I think it took just a little bit of a push. I think it took a little bit of setting expectations. You know, in any field you're in, people are going to sort of tend to go back to what they're comfortable and what they've done before. So really, a lot of what it took was just a little bit of push and understanding that this, that that there was leadership buy-in. And, I, and actually, I should have mentioned in the beginning, one of the biggest reasons that we both were successful with our you know TMF proposal, but 
as a whole is that I've had extraordinary support from the leadership of the department and the focus from the secretary, the deputy secretary, our undersecretaries and leadership has been they want the department to move forward. They want to make sure that we're providing services and capabilities to our team and then out to the taxpayers. Many of them came from private sector and from the financial sector and other places where this was an expectation. It was expected that you were moving towards the most efficient, effective tools to do the job. And so it was just their expectation. And I think they really did a lot of the work for me in sort of changing how the culture looked at this as across the department. And, and again, we're still in the process. You know, culture doesn't change overnight. We're still moving that forward. But we've had a lot of folks around the department who, uh, who really embraced it as we move forward. And I have a question on that culture idea, especially because there's a special kind of twist with the energy department, federated, that's unlike other federated departments. And that is you have very large, massive, long-term contractors running very big components, namely the labs. How do they figure into the whole architecture and culture and the change you're trying to drive? One of the good news stories, frankly, is that many of our labs have been at the forefront of this change. So we have a number of our labs that were among the first people around government to be moving out in cloud in general. And so I, you know, I've had a number of our labs who actually have been helping us and providing us expertise and lessons learned on their moves to cloud across, you know, again, not only platform as a service and email, but even into things like, you know, even into SaaS and other areas. So one of the great values you have at the Department of Energy is, you know, because it is, we have this federated model, we have our different labs. Part of the purpose was so that the labs can go out and be the, the first movers so that they can sort of, you know, they can do what labs do, which is experiment. We want them to be out looking at the new things. And, and you know, my goal is then to bring that back in the department, um, take advantage of their lessons learned, and, and hopefully take credit for it. One of the things about the, this new approach in the, in the business case is understanding costs. And I think that's something, as you've seen throughout your time in energy, but probably also when you, you were in the government previously, is understanding the cost. How did you guys go about that? How did you figure out? Because one of the challenges that I've heard, for instance, and this is a kind of an aside, but with the old competitive sourcing A76 effort was, well, the government doesn't have to pay for electricity, or they don't have to pay for building costs, or they don't have to pay for X. Because even if you outsource the email, you still are in the building. Or if you outsource janitorial services, you still own the building. How did you figure all that out as part of this business case? In some of those areas, again, for headquarters, because we had already gone through the change, we had a fairly good understanding of those. And then and what we were able to do is, as we've worked with some of the program offices and talked to some other you know, labs and folks, what we saw was some of them actually already had a pretty good understanding of, of the cost model part. Uh, but we knew those here in the headquarters. And, and I think you're right. There is definitely a tendency, uh, at least on the federal side, we have these sort of what we'll call sunk costs that we simply ignore when we're doing our math, right? So we assume, well, we have federal employees. We're already in the building. We're already paying power. We're already paying for air. And so we don't always appropriately put those into our cost models when we're building things out. I think, you know, and this has been one of the drivers for things like data centers and other things is making sure that we're really looking holistically at all of our costs in doing those things. I think the other thing that we tried to make some effort to capture was understanding the cost of just using legacy systems. You know, understanding that our folks were not necessarily going to have the right skill sets they needed to go forward. Understanding where it was going to make it harder for us to bring new employees in who were used to doing things in the cloud and other areas. And to be honest, of course, those are difficult costs to necessarily put a a dollar figure on, uh, but they are really important costs. 
And to the degree we could, you know, we took some ballpark estimates of them. But, but I think those are the other things that also helped us going back to the culture issue was people understood that all those things, while there wasn't a dollar amount on them, they were a significant overall resource driver at the department where we were not making progress. All right, moving beyond the TMF part of the cloud, you've got other cloud initiatives, and there's still a government-wide cloud mandate, if you will. Maybe talk about some of the other cloud types of services, cloud deployments that you're contemplating, and what the goals are there. And we can include, I guess, the cybersecurity question and all of that also. On cloud overall, you know, we're certainly at the headquarters level, we're we're actually making progress. We've actually just started, we just got a first couple of uh, workloads moved into cloud, into some infrastructure, which has been a, a big move forward for us. And we're, you know, again, part of that is spending the time with our team, making sure that they get the skill sets and the training and the understanding of how things will be different, managing in the cloud versus in an on-prem data center, for example. So we're we're at the front end, at least at the headquarters of our journey into cloud, Again, I'll, I'll mention one of the great values we've had is many of our labs have been pushing aggressively into cloud, and they've been a huge help to us in providing lessons learned, best practices, identifying tools and things that would make that process easier. So I would tell you we're on the front end, but we're we're moving quickly to the spot where we can do what we'll call velocity migration, where we can really start putting things out in the cloud very quickly. Um, and of course, that's going to take a change in the in some of the capabilities and skill sets of our team, whether they're federal or contractor, because we're going to want to emphasize things like you know putting things in containers, building things with the cloud in mind, because obviously if we're going to make those moves and get out of legacy, we want to take full advantage of that. We want to build things where they can be mobile. We want to build things where we can have the flexibility that you get out of the cloud. So that's certainly one of those drivers. On the security aspect of it, and and I have this conversation with people a lot, one of my main points that I make to people is the cloud is not more or less secure. It's just different risk, right? We have risks with on-prem and on our own data centers. The cloud has risks, and they're not more or less risk. They're simply different risks. And so what's really important is to not try and put the models that we use on what we're doing on-prem when we move to the cloud. They need to be different models. The cloud takes some risks off the table for us, but it adds some new ones on, You know, especially when you look at things like change control, access management, things like that. Those become much more important when you move to the cloud. Some other things like some of the patching and vulnerability management, moving to the cloud actually makes those easier for us in many cases. And so it's really important that we do change our models as we make that move to understand how we manage our risk better in the cloud. There's plenty to talk about there. Max, let's take another quick break. When we come back, we can can continue talking about cloud. My guest is Max Everett, the Energy Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and I'm with Tom Temin. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and I'm joined for this program with Tom Temin, the anchor of the Federal Drive, no less. Our second show together, Tom, this is exciting. And our guest is Max Everett, the Energy Department's Chief Information Officer. Max, last segment, we were talking a lot about the cloud and how you guys are moving to the cloud. Tom brought up the idea of security, and you offered a little bit more about how security in the cloud is different risks. It's a different consideration than on-prem. One of the big challenges and one of the reasons why maybe the Energy Department is maybe a little bit behind other agencies when it comes to cloud computing moving into the cloud is the trusted internet connection, the TIC. And that has been 
uh, what I termed the albatross hanging around the clouds neck for the last 10 years or so. And OMB released recently a draft policy update to tick. And part of that draft policy was influenced by a pilot that the energy department took part in. So first of all, let's start with that pilot. Talk as much as you can about the pilot and what, what did it entail? So we've been looking at this for a while. I, I've been around federal for a while, so I was frankly very aware of some of the challenges that, that TIC was providing to the move to the cloud. I mean, again, of course, I think many of your listeners know that, that when the TIC was first started, it was incredibly important for us in government. It was a different time, but it was really important because we just had so many op- open doors into our networks that the TIC was really a very necessary thing when it was first started. But of course, technology has evolved. So it was really important that the tick evolve. And being government, sometimes things take a little longer to evolve than they need to. When I started this job 18 months ago, I already saw immediately both from OMB, DHS, and others that there was an almost uniform understanding that the tick had to change, that we could not move forward in cloud and just, and frankly, and again, not just cloud, but in overall in mobility, telework, and all of the kind of things that we're moving towards. The tick was just not the right architecture, that we ultimately were all going to have to be moving towards something where we protect data where it is, and that the aggregation model was not the right one. So we worked with OMB and DHS, and a couple of the other agencies did very similar sort of pilots, but we did a specific pilot with them focused on our Office 365 implementation to try and find some different ways to provide protection to our resources and that data without going through tick aggregation. We had, frankly, what I consider just an amazing collaboration with both DHS and OMB in that process, working together. And I think one of the key focuses was this was not an effort to recreate tick in the cloud. It was taking a step back and focusing on how do we provide the intent and the protections of TIC wherever the data goes. And I think that made all the difference because, again, we weren't trying to shove TIC into a sort of a new thing. It was readdressing the fundamental nature of TIC, which was about how do we protect ourselves as a federal government. So the result of that, we, you know, again, and I mentioned uh, before, as we've moved, one of the holdups from some of my, especially some of my geographically dispersed uh, organizations for the department, one of the holdups for them moving to cloud email was the tick aggregation. It just introduced latency and some other things that were a real challenge from a customer service perspective. So, you know, really the output over a couple months working with folks was we saw some dramatic improvements in latency and response time and other things under our pilot. And the pilot used a couple of different things. We looked at both some overlay controls, but also what was the data that we could pull directly out of 365, and what are some other options we can use to get the visibility we need so that we know that we have the security and the visibility across all of the sort of things that we want to know on network security and things like that. So we had some good outputs. We're actually looking at sort of moving to a next phase of that in line with, you know, the new TIC reference architecture that came out. And again, we're doing that in collaboration with DHS and OMB, who have been really good partners in it. It's one that I'm frankly very optimistic about, just because everybody knows the time has come. And and you're seeing a lot more leverage. But the result of that was that lined up directly with this work we're doing on TMS. As well. well, when you say you're not having to aggregate your traffic to run it through a tick, does that mean that you are disaggregating tick maybe as a series of microservices and bringing tick to the traffic? That's probably a good way to put it. I think, and I think what you've already seen when you look at the new direction on tick is the, the answer is there, there's no one answer. There are still places, for example, coming off of our headquarters traffic where traffic aggregation just makes sense. I mean, in other places, we're using things like MTIPS, but in other places, 
we're looking to do something exactly like what you talked about, which is how can we put these protections right there in the cloud where our data sits? So it's really going to be a mix of all those solutions together, and it's going to be risk-based. You know, it's going to be looking at what is the traffic, what is the end-user device, those type of things. All of those things need to feed into the conversation so that you put the best possible solution in place. Now that the tick pilot's over and, and the policy, the draft policy's out, do you feel like it captured a lot of what you tried to do and what your experiences were? Did you see some of the experiences you had, the lessons you had reflected in that draft policy? We did. I think part of the policy was to make sure that we hit things at a very high level. Our pilot was just that one focus on 365, but even if we did our pilot, we wanted to make sure that the information that we gave back over to DHS and OMB, and we got to have a lot of input even as they've gone through this process, along with other departments and agencies, we wanted to make sure that it would apply everywhere. You know, we, we weren't just trying to solve for the question about cloud email. We want to solve, and, and in fact, not even just the question of cloud. We want to help solve for the question of mobility as a whole, right? And that's a pretty broad one. And so I think they did a fairly good job of trying to capture that broad challenge and how we can move forward on it. And I think what's been one of the biggest challenges, as you said, is the latency. It doesn't really work well in this new mobile world that we're in. And actually, it's a great segue to the next set of security discussions, which is around the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, CDM. Let me start with the status of Energy Department CDM implementation. Where are you guys at with that? We're moving, in, and essentially, we're at this spot where we're doing the catch-up in a lot of our labs and sites um, on the first couple of phases. The department had put the first couple of phases of TIC in place here at the headquarters level, um, but it had not been extended out to our labs. So that was something that my leadership immediately identified as something that, that we couldn't continue, that we need the capabilities and the, the protection. And frankly, as CIO, I need the visibility we get from, from CDM tools and capabilities across the entire department. Department. Uh, because we are one department, um, certainly we will look at the cyber threats that are out there. That's how the department has to be approached. And so uh, we're right in the phase now where we're essentially doing the assessments to understand where we may have gaps, where we mean to put those tools in place. The good news for us as a department was most of our labs already had the CDM tools and capabilities already in place. They weren't called CDM. And again, my focus is the tools and capabilities, not CDM as a program. And I think that's been a big change they've made in CDM as the program is they've moved the focus on the protection and the tools, uh, which I think is the most important thing. And so we're busy doing some of those assessments to see if there are places we have gaps, we want to go in and fill those quickly. And then for many places, they've already got great tools in place. It's just a matter of getting the data and visibility pulled up into a central way that we can better understand you know, what is our cyber posture across the department. And are you able to somehow meld the physical security, in, which has cyber implications, with the pure cyber security? I'm thinking of some of the celebrated incidents that have happened to energy over the years, which are the loss or potential loss of information through insider thefts of various methodologies. Well, the reality is many of the CDM tools are going to give us assistance in, in our uh, insider threat programs. So we expect that as those roll out, those are going to help us with that. You know, I will tell you, certainly, we have folks already working right now in our insider programs that do good work. We've got a lot of our cybersecurity protections, again, focused on making sure that we can secure the department's data. So CDM is going to help us with that because it's going to give us more visibility, I think, as you know, on who is on the network, 
what's on the network, and then understanding what kind of what kind of activities are anomalous and things like that across the network. But part of that for the department is CDM is going to allow us to continue some of the work we're already doing in making sure as a department that we share the things we're seeing. When we see threats come in, when we see new phishing attempts, the department has really done a lot of work under our IJC3 organization of trying to make sure that we're better sharing those indicators in real time. What percentage of data is being flowed to that agency-wide dashboard under CDM? Are you guys at most, some, all? Well, right right now, again, because our focus is is just been at the headquarters level, it's a pretty limited percentage of the department. But but at it's, the same time, I'm going to jump in that JC3 is also seeing other pieces and parts that may not be feeding to the dashboard, but is giving you a, a different set, set of visibility too, right? Oh, absolutely. So I yeah. So IJC three has that visibility across the department. Um, we are right now building out. Uh, we have a, we have a tool called the Big Data Project, and it is a it is a cloud based tool where we're able to aggregate information held at a FISMA high level and start to give us the visibility across the entire department, so that we have again that sort of shared visibility where we may initially see an attempt, whether it's a reconnaissance or something else in one part of the department, but we know that our adversaries series would quickly try that other places. So now we're able to get ahead of that and have that visibility. So that is something we do have visibility across the entire department on. And again, one of our goals is that CDM data will all flow up with the rest of the other network data that we pull together, because the goal is to aggregate all of that and get as much visibility. And again, one of the places our labs are really helping is starting to help us understand where we can bring some new and unique analytics to the table to look at that data and find some things that we would not find in other ways through through commercial tools and things that might be out there right now. Very good. It's good to hear because I think I want to make sure people understood that you guys are not just quote unquote blind in three quarters of the agency. You definitely have visibility. It's just not the quote unquote CDM visibility, right? Yeah, and CDM, you know, again, CDM is an important element of understanding those pieces of what's going on in the network. But we do have our CPP program and some other ones that are already have long been existing across the department, and CDM is going to help us evolve those to another level. Very nice. Max, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest is Max Everett, the Energy Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and I'm joined by Tom Temin of the Federal Drive. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and I'm joined by Tom Temin of the Federal Drive. And our guest today is Max Everett, the Energy Department's Chief Information Officer. Max, we're talking about CDM, the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program in the previous segment. I want to continue that that thread and talk a little bit about mobility and how CDM is also going to be key to getting more visibility around your mobile devices and securing those mobile devices. Give me a sense of, of where you're looking to go with using those CDM tools and mobile devices. In cloud and on mobile, you know, I know DHS is working on some strategies to, to how to better get, and again, I think importantly, the emphasis on the capability and visibility to get it out to cloud and mobile. And we've actually been doing some pilots here on looking at and understanding better what tools we're using to manage our mobile devices and our endpoints. But as you know, you know, CDM has a number of tools, I think, that are very good for managing endpoint. One of the things we're trying to understand is, you know, our focus is, especially as we're doing some of the assessments right now, it's, you know, we're not really going and asking people what tools you do or don't have. We're focusing on the, the data. What is the information and data that is most valuable to us to secure to the department? 
Do you have that data and how can we get it? Um, and I think that's really a critical part is understanding, you know, that's that visibility question. What can we see? And then understanding what's the most valuable data that helps us understand that better. And that's going to be really our drivers for some of our initial tool rollouts here is when we answer those questions. And do you find that the mobile device management systems are capable of this kind of visibility or do you need something overlaying those? There's certainly some good ones out there. And we're in the process of looking some different ones to see what's out there. But I think what's important on some of those is, again, the focus that has to be on the data and, and some of the use cases. You know, you have some people and they've got, you know, they may have a mobile device and they're just doing some basic work, you know, very low risk, unclassified level. But one of the things that's frankly critical to us here at the department um, is encryption. You know, I would tell you in my experience in federal, I think our department, you know, on the unclassified side, uses encryption probably more than any other agency I've been around because we do handle a lot of stuff that while it is, you know, while it's unclassified, it's very sensitive. And so there's a lot of care and a lot of work at this department to make sure that, you know, whether it's PII, whether it's just more sensitive data, that we use encryption as much as we can to protect that data. Because, of course, we know once stuff's out in email, it's just very easy to missend it and do those kind of things. So that's been a long emphasis at the department here. And one of the things we're trying to do is make that easier for end users to use. Um, and that's a big emphasis for me on mobile. As we have people, you know, uh, you walk around offices now, both in the government and private sector, you'll see people doing email from their mobile device standing at their own desk. So we know that, that mobile um, is going to be one of the key drivers of how workforce works going forward, and it already is. And so a big one for me is making sure that our MDM and all of our endpoint tools make it as easy as possible for people to do their work and secure their data right there from the mobile phone. Um, and that thing where encryption, you know, and having just better systems for doing storage and sharing, I think those are really the critical part that actually protects those endpoint devices no matter what they are. And most of the encryption discussions involve data at rest and data in motion. But I imagine maybe some of the supercomputing facilities at Energy are probably looking at this next wave or possibility of technology for encryption during processing, so-called homomorphic encryption. And probably only a supercomputer can even approach the power necessary to handle that. But do you see that long range as something coming into this whole encryption picture? Well, that's certainly, obviously, our department does a lot of work at our labs, both on our NNSA has many of the nation's most important nuclear secrets. And so they do an extensive amount of work to make sure that those things are protected for the long term. So as you can imagine, and, and you're absolutely right, one of the challenges many of our uh, labs are looking at with their the high-performance computing and supercomputing is being able to run, potentially run, you know, more important and more sensitive work on those computers in a way that that work is protected, even in the sort of shared environment that you have in a large supercomputer. So they're doing a lot of work around the different ways that you can protect and containerize and encrypt, even to your point, those things that are as they're being processed. Certainly homomorphic encryption is one of those options. And of course, our labs are also leading the way in some of the work on, uh, on quantum encryption, quantum networking. And in the long term, you know, what things might look like for even quantum computing. Tom brought up the labs. And one of the other things that the labs have been working on with you guys is around 
this uh, intrusion detection tool called Bro, B-R-O. And it's something, Max, you and I talked about, I guess, so when you were on the show, maybe about a year, year and a half ago. So give me a sense of what is Bro again. Remind us, and, and what, what kind of difference are you seeing it already making? Well, so Bro is actually designed by one of our labs. So it's available as an open source product. Uh, there's also a commercial vendor that supports it. But it's frankly uh, an enormously powerful tool, you know, for doing a lot of work on network security in other areas. And it's one that we've made. Again, there are people in, in public and private sector who are making really extensive use of Bro. We've been using it on a number of our sites, and we're actually rolling out to some, some more of them. Um, but it really gives us some very uh, impressive analytic capabilities. Um, it, it especially lets us put in a, analytic capabilities out to the edge, which, given the amount of data, the number of sensors that we're seeing in any modern network, being able to put those analytics out at the edge on the sensors, I think, is one of the critical things that's going to let us manage the just the deluge of data that we have. Max, this has been a fascinating conversation. We're just about out of time, but I can't let you go without first talking about the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, or FATARA. The most recent report card came up, and Energy had some something maybe a little bit to celebrate. You guys earned a B plus. And this is after a lot of struggles over the years of to get your fatar grades up and better and improve them. So first of all, congratulations on the B plus. But second, how'd you do it? We're certainly proud of the effort. You know, I, I would tell you, frankly, the, the most important thing in when it comes to Fatara is, is, in many ways, just doing the basics. It's doing some of the basics of, you know, and again, not even just cyber hygiene, but really just doing some basics of management, of management of IT. Um, I think that's been a critical one for us. Again, part of the reason our grade went up is precisely because we've had the leadership support, you know, whether it was moving my reporting to the secretary and deputy secretary, some of the other support that they've given us in how we better manage our IT budget here has been a big part of that. I would say the other thing is, in some ways, it's simply better visibility and reporting of the department. We were already doing some stuff fairly well, as we've done a better job of understanding and getting the stories about what our lab partners and other people are doing. It simply helped us tell, tell our story better and report some of the things we were already doing very well. So I think all those things have, have definitely come together to help us uh, improve the grade we got on Fatara. And while we have you, Max, you deal a lot with, or CIOs deal a lot with industry and vendors. What is it you'd like them to know to be able to do business more effectively with the energy department? Well, I mean, a big part of that is obviously if they look online, you know, we've, we have our cyber strategy we released this summer. I think that gives people a good picture of where we're going on some of that work. We've got some other things that we're going to be putting out, you know, over the next six months that talk a little more about where we're going in terms of our journey into the cloud, about some other emphasis we have on just doing better customer service, and even just within our department, doing a better job of doing shared services across our department. Um, I think people will start to see and hear about some additional opportunities to work with us and help us build out those initiatives. Max, we're just about out of time. Before I let you go, I know a lot of vendors definitely listen to the show. So what advice do you have for vendors who want to work with Energy Department? Keep a lookout on, on some, of the usual, you know, some of the usual suspects of schedules uh, where we put things out. Obviously, we just recently uh, awarded a large contract here uh, that I'm sure many, many folks in the industry are aware of. But we've got a lot of work as, as we move towards better management of, of our costs, but also of our business requirements. One of our goals is going to be to actually make sure that we have some discrete projects and things that small business can come help us with. I think that's a very important thing. And I think, again, as we do our job and, and break down and understand what are our business requirements, what are the needs we have to support the mission of the department, when we do a good job of those, we can break those down into some pretty, pretty discrete elements 
where smaller businesses have the agility and some unique skill sets that can help us address those. All right, very good advice. Max, this has been a fascinating conversation. We're, we're unfortunately out of time. So first, let me thank my guest, Max Everett, the Energy Department's Chief Information Officer. Max, thank you so much for taking your time today. Hey, thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. And I should thank my uh, co-host on this one, Tom Temin of the Federal Drive. Tom, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Max, it was great to speak with you. And Jason, great to join you on one of the other great shows here on Federal News Network. And you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.